Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Well, welcome to uh, Word in Your Ear. Um, he's David Hepworth and I'm Mark Allen. Now, the first group that I ever saw was Brinsley Schwartz, uh, who were playing... Anybody else see Brinsley Schwartz? Oh, look at that. And, uh, yeah, who were playing at the Chalk Farm Roundhouse in 1970. They were bottom of the bill, top of the bill. I think it was the soft machine and various other um, exciting and, uh, and uh, mind-expanding uh, entertainments. And uh, the first member of Brinsley Schwartz to come out of the wings, and therefore, for me, the first rock star I ever saw, and these are very, very important, life-changing moments, was their charismatic 20-year-old leader with a Fender bass in one hand and a bottle of Newcastle brown ale and a fag on in the other, and uh, his curtain of hair and his cowboy boots. And I can remember being absolutely captivated by him <laughs> and, uh, and have remained captivated uh, ever since. I've followed him for the 50 years, the incredible, unique and extraordinary music he's made. And it's 50 years that I've had to wait, in fact, for somebody to finally put out the definitive biography. And what an entertaining job that must have been to write that. And here he is. Please welcome the great Will Birch. Thank you. And Will, we should start by allowing you to to introduce uh, yourself, because you were the the drummer of the Kersal Flyers, you were the drummer of the records. And uh, what was your... And why why did you want to write a book about Nick, in fact? Well, somebody would have written a book about Nick if I hadn't have done. And in fact, in the run-up to when I started, I heard of at least two other people, both in America, who were contemplating doing a biography of Nick. And at that time, Nick was managed by our friend, Mr. Jake Jake Riviera. And uh, they were sort of persuaded not to even (laughs) start the project, which which actually happened to me, but more of that later. Do you use those fingers for typing? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, we'll get on to that later. Very good. Um, Somebody had to to, to write a book about Nick, and I thought there was a yawning gap on the rock and roll bookshelf. And (laughs) not only that, his story is... I'm obviously P-L-U-G, you know, but his story is fantastic. 
and his life has been full of incredible incidents, as you're probably aware. Absolutely. So it had, it had to be a book. Well, we had a podcast with him a while ago when he told the story about, uh, about the rock pile at the bottom line oh, yeah. with Keith Richards. So we'll, we will make sure that you tell that later on. <laughs> well, not as well as Nick. <laughs> not as well as Nick, which is fantastic. So, can I just ask a question? When did you first come across Nick Lowe? Well, I was a Brinsley Schwartz fan. Right. And um, I, therefore... A I was... select band. <laughs> well, it had a very select audience. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> They're nearly all here, I think. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, obviously it was evident to me that he was a great, very good songwriter. And um, the pub rock circuit was in its heyday. And I was, I'd been playing in local groups in Southend since I was 15 or something. And the pub rock circuit opened it up for us guys because... Prior to that, it was almost impossible to get... You know, if you didn't have a record company, you couldn't get an agent, and vice versa, catch-22. And I, I used to spend all of my young years perusing the back of the Melody Maker. Musicians wanted columns. I went for auditions. Ludicrous, because I was a crap drummer. But I kept going for auditions. I kept d- dreaming and praying and talking to these management companies. Yeah, I've got this band in Southend. We're fantastic. We signed with the late Tony Hall, uh, who died recently. Yeah, and his co-manager, Peter Meaden, who was the manager of The Who. A lot of that, we were trying... This was in the progressive, this was 69, 70. And then the pub rock scene, and it opened it up for everybody. And I was mates with the Feel Goods from Canvey Island, and I managed to get them their first London pub gig at the Tally Ho in, in Kentish Town, only because a mate of mine was working for the agency. And I said, look, the feel-goods, they're great, but they're made for the pub rock circuit. So the feel-goods got on the pub rock circuit. And then when we formed Curzel Flyers, a year later, Lee and the guys said, come on, and they helped us on. So both bands were, you know, cooperating quite well with each other. And Brinsley Schwartz were on that scene as well, of course. Well, we're going to start by, by asking you about Nick's... Uh, relationship with his dad, the wonderfully titled Drain Low. In fact, I think Nick's middle name is Drain. Well, Jeffrey Drain Low. Jeffrey Drain. Drain. Drain's the middle name, and Drain was the name adopted by all of the male, uh, the kids in that family through the generations, and even some of the of the girls had Drain as middle name as well. And the story goes that they were taken in by a Scottish doctor in the 18th century, whose name was Drain, and he brought them up. And they, he insisted they kept their name low, but asked them if they would retain Drain as a middle name. And that's how that name has been handed down. But his father comes across as a great hero, doesn't he? I mean, he was yeah, in the episode, sure. moving around all the time. And then yeah. immensely charming parties. You describe how Nick, could, Nick uh, at the age of seven, could, could work a room. He could. So he learned yeah. all that from his father. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think Drain was... Um, well, Nick says, hail fellow, well met. I've never really understood that expression but he liked uh, a drink and he was jolly good company I gather but he was also a hero um, during the second world war when he flew RAF bomber planes and crash landed his plane as well on the east coast of England in 41 I think and um, Nick got a lot from Drain I think because Drain was after the war Drain was variously stationed in Cyprus and in Jordan and Nick at six, seven, eight years of old grew up, grew up in that RAF environment but overseas and he saw how all the boys, all the, all the officers got on and I think that's where Nick kind of got his act from, 
from his dad. Well, the persona, you mean? The yeah, the persona. Well, are we man or mask? Do you mean Nick has a persona? Well, on stage he, he, or in interviews or whatever, he all seems to project that kind of... Yeah, you can charm- imagine it, carolous, clubbable, it, it, charming. It's the RAF mess, yeah. isn't yeah, it? Yeah, he's, right? he's very charming and he's very good. You were talking earlier about the arcane expressions. He's got a few of those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Little, I say, oh boy, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All that stuff. Yeah. Well, they, I mean, Nick they, can do that. Well, he, they used to call him Basher Lowe, didn't yeah. they? You know, uh, it was yeah. as if he was the, a member of a, of a, you know, a crew of a bomber. Yeah, Basher's gone over the side. Right. Yeah. <laughs> He's bought <laughs> caught a packet of Bandits at three o'clock. Huns <laughs> pranked yeah. our, the fans on our kite. But he, you talk about uh, going to him, going to the races with his with his yeah. dad, and being completely Nick. A very young age was captivated by a guy called Prince Monolulu, who was yeah, a, Prince a black, Monolulu. black racing pundit. He was right? a racing pundit. He Looking was known at, at the time in the mid 1950s as probably the most famous black man in in England, in Britain. Yeah, probably was. Yeah. He was very famous, and he would be at all the races. And uh, Drain used to take Nick to the uh, race course, which is just quite near where they lived, and uh, Nick got one glance of Prince Monolulu and this actually chimed almost with the moment that Little Richard's first record hit and Nick was captivated by, by the, the most important thing really is, really is the look and the sound kind of supports the look right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. as opposed to the, yeah. I, 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 that's my theory about no, rock, I, I, rock and roll you yeah. know, because you know if Elvis Presley looked like Carl Perkins where would it we wouldn't be? have happened yeah. at all Absolutely. That's just sorry to be cold. (laughs) (laughs) And so Lonnie Donegan, the shadows, these were all big. So when did he start playing? What was the first instrument he picked up? Uh, Nick was given a a ukulele banjo by his grandmother, who'd been in the music hall and came from a music background. And um, uh, Nick's mum played rudimentary guitar, so Nick's mum taught him a few chords. Um, he, he also had a, uh, th- this uh, banjo. Uh, no, then he got a... It, it, that was a, a plastic ukulele. Then he got a round-bodied banjo, which came with a device called a Chordmaster. I don't know if you remember those, but they were... You put them on top of the neck, and you could press one button to achieve a chord. Okay. So you'd press A, C, F, G, or whatever. Uh, but Nick dispensed with the uh, device because he thought it was a bad look. You know, at the age of nine. <laughs> he was right. So he was right, yeah. <laughs> and uh, he very quickly learnt on this uh, banjo. And then when he went to school, sec- uh, secondary school uh, at the age of about 11, 12, a uh, bass became his instrument. His first bass was made in the school woodwork class. He claims he made it, but another boy actually made it. But right. there's a picture in here of Nick with his first homemade bass. Yeah. So what's his first proper group? Uh, well, at school he was in quite a lot of... I mean, he had skiffle groups as a 12-year-old, but when he got to school and in his teenager, so post-Shadows, Beatles era, 63, 64, uh, he formed groups with his uh, classmates. So they had a band called Sound 4 Plus 1. Oh. Or, or when they had two singers, they became Sound 4 Plus 2. Right. And um, then he formed a, boot, a group called R.A.B.L., which stood for Rhythm and Blues Limited, <laughs> oh. and played at school concerts. 
And that's where he kind of learned his chops, you know, really. And, and, and the main guys in that group became uh, Kippington Lodge. Right, right. So this uh, is we're, jump, we're jumping on a bit, but yeah. No, no, one of them was Brinsley Schwartz, wasn't he? Brinsley. He was two so years describe, older than Describe Nick. the sound of Kippington Lodge to people who might never have heard any of that. They made five uh, singles for uh, EMI. They were on Parlophone la- label, which was the same label as the Beatles. So obviously <laughs> they were hoping that would rub off on them. <laughs> And I think they recorded at Abbey Road. But their first two or three singles were uh, performed by session players. And um, then when Nick joined the group, he, uh, they, they got the chance to play on their own records. But I think Nick sees himself as being rather bossy in that group because he started to tell them, he started to tell Brins and the other guys like what was cool and, no, no, you shouldn't be doing all this foremost stuff. You know, soul music is where it's at. So Nick brought in an influence to the latter days of Kippington Lodge, who of course broke up, but then and became... They did, they did covers of Nights in White Sands. Well, they, they, they did cover... Well, I was told Billy Rankin, who became the drummer of Brinsley Schwartz, said the first thing he remembers about seeing them was that they did Nights in White Satin on stage, <laughs> if you can imagine <laughs> that. With Nick doing the vocal. Uh, audience <laughs> melting away. That's right, yeah. <laughs> Probably. Yeah. Um, yeah, Kipping Lodge, I say they broke up. They didn't, they became Brinsley Schwartz. In fact, they operated under both names for a period because they made money as Kippington Lodge. They had a residency at the Marquee Club where they famously played the night of the Rolling Stones uh, Hyde Park concert, which was just 50 years ago, ago the yeah. other week. Yeah. yeah, that was the night Nick was electrocuted on stage at the Marquee when he put his hand on, uh, had a badly earthed microphone and he played, touched his bass and the mic and it created a circuit and he was thrown backwards and Bob Andrews leapt forward and saved Nick. That's the story. Nick says that he was rushed to Middlesex Hospital in the break, in between sets. <laughs> <laughs> and he came... They well, le- came back for the second half. He came yeah. back for the second half yeah. and he said, yeah. they, were all in the, they were all in the ship drinking brandy. So he true. said, I couldn't... Un- like a cartoon um, character with a kind of skeleton yeah. flashing. That's yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Here is his back from the dead. It's Nick Lowe. <laughs> yeah, famously. Uh, so that was uh, in 1969. So they were Kippington Lodge playing the marquee and the tail end of their recording contract with EMI. But they knew there was something new on the horizon, which was really progressive rock, because they'd seen Yes and they'd seen King Crimson at the Marquee, both of whom are fabulous live groups, by the way. And Nick was very impressed, by both, as everybody was, by how great on stage both of those groups were. And they wanted to go progressive. And Nick said, this is where it's at, man. Oh, and Brins- Brinsley's playing Apache, and he's going, are you sure? You know, not to, but Brinsley's quite conservative. And Nick, Nick was the, the kind of the pushy. That's the way I, I hear it. But they were also obsessed Nick. with the band, weren't they? Because Very, was, was the, the mo- next year, 1970. Oh, that was next year, because yeah, they went off and yeah. lived in a, in a kind of commune, like the band, sort of a t- big pink, and they lived did, down the manor house out in the country. Room, yeah, they did, they did live communally. Um, they lived at Brinsley's parents' house near Tunbridge Wells. That's where they really first got together, but then they were sort of kicked out of there. And by this time, they're starting to become managed by Dave Robinson, who discovers them through putting an ad in the Melody Maker, looking for a a group. 
um, young songwriting group. Was he, he just wanted to mould somebody. Must have own van and equipment. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Obviously, the caveat to getting any management through an ad in the Melody Maker. And luckily, they did. They had a roadie, uh, uh, John Seymour, who had a van, and, and they had a little PA system. So Dave signed them up. And then that became part of the famous hype where they were taken to the... Uh, well, tell us, d- the tell that, that story. For those, yeah. there, there may be people who don't know this. Well, it's documented quite well, I'd like to think it, in my earlier book, No Sleep Till Canby Island. I touch on it here, in here because I have to, because a lot of people might read this but wouldn't know the other, the other book. Um, they were... Um, so Dave Robinson put an ad in the Billy Maker, auditioned 83 groups who were all rubbish except for uh, Kippington stroke Brinsley. Uh, Dave could recognise in Nick a genuine songwriter and signed them. And at that time, uh, Dave and his girlfriend Dot, um, who co-managed the group, got involved with a guy who went under the name of Eddie Moulton and Eddie Moulton was uh, a bit of a con man and got involved in lots of different um, enterprises. And he, what, he, what Eddie Moulton did, really, was he would have five projects on the go, and if Project A made a bit of money, he would move it to Project B, and before the cheque had cleared, he'd draw on that money. So it was called kite flying. So he's writing cheques he couldn't cash, and the Brinsleys got tied up in this. And they had a meeting, and they said, how can we get Brinsley Schwartz a record contract? And somebody in, in the office said, we, we've got to put them on at the, at the best rock venue there is. Where's that? And somebody said, oh, it's the speakeasy. <laughs> and then somebody said, no, the marquee. And then it was got to be the Royal Albert Hall. And then Dave Robinson said, no, the Fillmore East New York. That is the, the shrine of rock and roll at the moment. So they decided they were going to launch Brinsley Schwartz in New York, which they did. And they flew um, 200-odd journalists over. And, the sto- I mean, it's probably a lot of people in, in the room here have read or know the story, so I won't labour on the detail. But to cut the st- long story short is that the, the plane was delayed. They had to do a, a, an emergency landing in Shannon because the plane lost its brake fluid over the Irish Sea. They, ar- <laughs> they arrive at JFK about 90 minutes before the band are due on stage. There's a, a cavalcade of um, limos taking them into... The, it's a Saturday night, so they're converging with the bridge and tunnel crowd. Everybody's trying to get into Manhattan. Motorcycle outriders, a couple of the limos crash... And at the precise minute the drunken journalists walk into the Fillmore, the Brinsleys are walking on stage. And as Charlie Gillett tells it, the late Charlie Gillett, they were absolute rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> and they were... And I the mean, press were fantastically pissed, having been on an airplane. They were really... And in bad-tempered and... Yeah, they were very, very, very drunken. And um, so the band were rubbish. The following day they had a press conference where the band obviously got drunk and... It was a complete disaster, and they came back to really bad headlines. And that was when they thought, well, we're going to have to knock this on the head, or we're going to have to respond to it. And sort of organically, they, they became a kind of a down-home... You know, they turned on this showbiz hype and looked in on themselves and became a very kind of grassroots 
They became very virtuous, didn't they? I remember yeah. they, they were always written about, you know, they were always invoked when people were trying to, you know, have a go at somebody who was really big, whoever it was, 10 CC. They, they ought to say, you ought to be like Brinsley Schwartz, <laughs> who live in a little commune, yeah. you know, somewhere in Essex or wherever. Yeah. wherever. They did, they did, and... Um they wanted to be the band, as you were saying. You were asking about the band. And that 1970, 71, yeah. obviously, Big Pink. Yeah. Fantastic. And then famously, the band actually came and rehearsed at their commune. Yeah, yeah. Because on said Crosby, Stills and Nash concert in 74 at Wembley with Joni Mitchell, the band were on the bill. And Warner Brothers were looking for a rehearsal space and got in touch indirectly with the Brinsleys. And Brinsley took the call and, and they said... Um, the band want to come and rehearse at your... And he told the other members of the group, and he said, the band, they, went, they thought it meant a band. He goes, no, the band are coming here. <laughs> and they turned up. Bob Andrews said they all got out of the van looking like cardboard cutout Western figures, you yeah, know. Yeah. And they borrowed some of the Brinsley's and, and f- equipment, and famously, um, uh, Robbie Robertson um, left his... Um, guitar lead behind and Brinsley seized it and plugged it in and he said I still said didn't sound like Robbie Roberts <laughs> hoping he would magically transform yeah yeah sound. exactly right, right, yeah, yeah exactly he said you know Robbie was playing through my amp but he sounded yeah. like Robbie Robertson yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and of course it's all in the old that, you know that's really what the sound is about so not, they, the, not the boxes you know yeah. they were kind of apologetic was the whole thing of the British yeah wasn't yeah it? yeah the, in, in a sort of introverted and more, you know, I'm terribly sorry, and we hope we're not in your way. Yeah, yes. They, yeah. yeah. And they sit, that suited the pub rock circuit down t- tremendously. Right. But Nick was writing such good songs. I mean, on some of those Brinsley's albums, there's but, some crackers. But you talk about, in, in the book, about, you know, in, the, in this time when they were all living together in the commune, Nick was having a very kind of difficult personal time, wasn't he? He was going through all kinds of... Yeah, he was taking a lot, of, a lot of drugs... And he, um, you know, he, he let himself go. He, he stopped taking care of himself physically. You know, he got horrible illnesses and stuff, yeah. And he really, he really, he really sank, you know. And the, other, the band used to have to like, look after him. It's like, it was, who's got Nick? Right. You know, they would be loading the, the, the van with the gear at the end of the show and Nick would just sit in the, in the um, dressing room, couldn't, couldn't communicate. So it was just... Depression. Yeah, total, total breakdown, total depression. What brought him out of that? Um, well, I think he, you know, he met one or two influential people, girls particularly. There was one, there was one girl called Ulla Heathcote who was a, well, is a fashion designer, knitwear fashion designer, and um, she, she really pulled him out of it. She, uh, for example, she had a sports car, took him to parties, introduced him to new experiences... Slightly right. more sophisticated <laughs> drugs, and that's what doctors should prescribe. Yeah, yeah. A girl with a sports car, yeah, yeah should be yeah. taken on the hour every hour yeah. till symptoms subside. <laughs> yeah. yeah, one of the things I like about the book is you, you, you make no bones about the fact that Nick Lowe was immensely charming to women. Oh, yes, oh, well, yeah, they, I mean, well, Roberta Bailey, the New York photographer who you know had a flig with Nick, as did many New York photographers. She, she said, every, every woman I've ever met, who, every woman I know who's ever met Nick, you know, wants to, to do it, you know. And he, he has trouble fitting them all in, I think. You know? 
Uh, yeah, very charming, you know. He can... I mean, you take a song like I Trained Her To Love Me, which yeah, yeah. is a, a fabulous song, but very, very, you know... Dark song. Yeah, and, and you know, I think he probably did have a way with the girls, yeah. They even got, then, even the... In yeah, the yeah, 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 yeah. I, I've, you know, known a lot, lots of uh, former girlfriends of Nick's and... You know, he's been married a couple of times since then, and he's got a family, so we're talking about 30, 40 yeah, years yeah, ago. Yeah, sure. But they talk very affectionately about his charm. Yeah. 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 Now, Ender Dave Edmonds comes into the Brinsley mm. story, he doesn't does. he? He does. The uh, hermit, yeah. Uh, the, the, and has a big effect on Nick Lowe, doesn't he? Yeah, I think, I think that what knocked Nick out was Dave's uh, studio uh, skills in the studio. Because he thought he'd been making records the wrong way, hadn't he? He suddenly looked at the way Dave Edmonds made records and thought... Yeah, Dave, Dave Edmonds was hired Six. to produce uh, Brinsley Schwartz's fifth album, the one with Peace, Love and Understanding, their last album, really, or the last one that was released. And Dave said to them, look, no, you're doing it all wrong. He said, the, the band, when the band make a record and they do Rag Mama Rag, it sounds like it does because it's produced to sound like you hear it. It's not that they don't use echo or they play re very fundamentally. It, it's very considered. Now, I don't know how true that is, but that's Dave's take on it. You yeah, know, yeah. You've got to make it sound that way. And Nick was very impressed by Dave's studio skills, echo effects, double tracking, you know, little guitar overdubs. Dave's in the studio. He's a, you know, he's a, the guy's great. He's a great producer as we all know. And Nick was very impressed with that. But Dave was going through a bit of a bad scene because he got divorced in Wales. He came to London with his tail between his legs. You know, he didn't have any friends. He didn't have any social skills, as he says. And um, I think Nick kind of took him in and they, they became real buddies. And then, of course, when Dave realised how good Nick was at writing songs and they were working together on... Here Comes the Weekend and Deborah and all those slightly pre-rock pile songs. You know, Dave thought, well, you know, this is, this is the formula. And, of course, they became rock pile. Tell us about what... <coughs> what we're looking at the, the label of what's so funny about Peace, Love and Understanding, which mm. is one of Nick's best-known songs. Yeah. No, it's never really been a hit anywhere, has it? Has it? Uh, I don't think it's been a hit single, but famously uh, recorded was... by... Oh, it was on the Bodyguard soundtrack, wasn't it? Famously, yeah. yeah famously recorded by Curtis Stigers yeah. for the soundtrack album of the, the movie The Bodyguard, Whitney yeah. Houston. It's the, still the biggest selling soundtrack album of all time. 45 million units yeah. recorded. Yes, Big, Nick, bigger Nick than, has talked bigger in than, the past about... Bigger the, than Michael Jackson, yeah. bigger than the Eagles. The biggest... I think he woke up one morning and a gigantic cheque came through his front <laughs> yeah, door. So and he says, yeah. couldn't believe it. You know. Yeah, it, it, it helped. It was a brilliant stroke of luck because had that money not arrived, I think Nick would have carried on, but he would have just been like a journeyman guy. Like you were talking earlier about what would have happened to... Were you talking about Neil Young? Would he become like Fred yeah, Neil or... Yeah. You know, it's vaguely heard of. And Nick could have sunk into obscurity. Well, he is in a sort of obscurity now, as far as the, the, the bigger world is concerned. But what that did, uh, getting that song on that album, it gave him a big chunk of money that he could indulge in recording at his own pace, in his own way. And out of that came 
The Impossible Bird, Dig My Mood yeah. and those right. 90s solo yeah. records, yeah. which are very good. So tell us about... You touched on earlier about, you know, when, when various parties who were put off writing a book, yeah. book about Nick Lowe because of the intervention of Jake Rivera. Uh, there will be people in this room who've never had the pleasure. Uh, <laughs> I have to say, I've been duffed up by Jake Rivera <laughs> in the dressing room of, uh, of, uh, of, I was thinking of the about Nashville this. rooms. I was, <laughs> yeah, I was thinking about this today because I thought it would be inevitable that one of you would ask about Jake... <laughs> And but Jake, Jake saw something in Nick, didn't he? He took him out of oh, the bridges and he, he just thought, I'm going to build a solo career for this man. So Jake Riviera is Nick, is, was and probably still is Nick's number one fan. To give Jake his due, he genuinely, genuinely saw something in Nick that very few people saw at that point and wanted to help his career. And, of course, Elvis came along as well. Elvis Costello came yeah. along as well. So he had two artists to manage, and they all worked together. They were a triumvirate, and they all helped each other directly and indirectly. But Jake, Jake, um, what can I say? He's a fan. He is... But very... he's an invented character, isn't he? Because yeah, he's not it's really pers- called Jake Rivera. He, no, he's Andrew Jakeman. <laughs> but he changed his name to Jake Rivera. But... Okay, well, that's quite funny. But Jake, Jake is a fan. Um, he is sort of the hippest man in the world. But when I say hip, he kind of... He's read that he knows where it's at, you know? And he knows what's cool at any given point in time. He might not today, but in 1977, 6, he knew where it was at. Yeah, yeah. And out of his fand- fandom, he was a fan. And out of that... He, 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 and he was genuinely creative. And all the slogans and all the... The inspiration behind Stiff was fabulous. And it came out of that guy's head. Yeah, because you should say he co-formed Stiff Records with Dave Robinson. Yeah. He did, yeah. yeah. Dave, Dave was the nuts and bolts guy. And, and Jake was the inspiration guy. Yeah. Yeah. They're very different But skills. he really believed in Nick and moulded him into this mm. solo artist, didn't he? Yeah, Actually, he... we've got to just quickly mention the story, which is extraordinary. I think Nick was signed to United Artists at the end of the Brinsley deal. Yeah, and they when... get out of it in a very, very, uh, yeah. very inventive way. Tell when, us, tell when, when, when the Brinsleys b- uh, broke up, uh, there was a moment when Nick and Ian Gom were going to form a songwriting stroke production duo, uh, uh, working with other artists, but that, that didn't happen because Ian Gom couldn't get on with Jake, who, who's going to manage this s- setup. So um, they retained Nick as a solo artist, but Jake wanted Nick out of his contract because he'd been on UA for five years with the Brinsleys. So they thought, well, the best thing we can do to get is give them the record they've asked for, but we'll make it so awful that they'll drop us. So this... Well, it's not an awful record. It's a fabulous record, but... The Bay City Rollers were the biggest thing in the world at, at that time. So they made a tribute record, which is a lovely record. And but you, Nick, the point is that Nick believed it was going to be so ghastly they'd hate Nick it. Nick thought yeah. they would just tear his contracts like up. The producers. It's like, it's like the producers, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Instead of which they went, great. We'll, <laughs> yeah. we'll put it out. And lo and behold, it, it's a hit record in Japan. <laughs> and Japan was then, and maybe still now, the fourth largest uh, yeah, yeah, market yeah. in the world for record after USA, 
Great Britain and Germany. Japan was the fourth biggest market. So they had a, a fairly big success with that. Um, they said, right, well, we want to follow-up. <laughs> so, so then he hired, Nick hired Dave Edmonds to make the follow-up, and the instructions were to make, the, you've, this has got to be so bad that they po- won't possibly release it. So they did that, and although they did release it a year later, they let Nick go. So Nick was out of his contract, and Jake was free to, um, you know, go and see other record companies. Right. Hawk him round. And, of course, you know, he started his own record company with, with Dave, which is Stiff. And, and Nick becomes the kind of... House producer. Bill Spector. Yeah. You know, yeah, he's the go-to guy. He can, he can do anything. He can, if you can't write a lyric, Nick can walk, go in the toilet for five minutes and knock out a lyric on the back of an envelope. You know, if you're not confident about your guitar, Nick can crack a joke and everybody falls about and it, the session ignites... So he had interpersonal skills. It's a really interesting point. You, yeah. you talk about this a lot in the book. Don't yeah. you? you say his genius with production is he could work it out in a group where the power centre was. Yeah, he, 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 he'd go in a room with four or five people. Uh, maybe they'd go to the pub first and have a couple of pints. And in that time, he would figure out where the, where the, where the power is. And, and it might not be the singer. It might not be the songwriter. It might, not, it might be the bass player or the drummer. Who, yeah. who is the real... The guy but who makes the decisions. How would he manipulate decisions. that person? Pardon? How would he manipulate that person? He would... Well, I shouldn't sound as a little bit cynical. I wouldn't presume to know the complete psychology, but he would, he would form a bond with that person yeah. to get the, the vote through on whether is we're doing this song or that song. And, and he would work with the, with, the, with the strongest member of the group. And it, as I say, it may not have been... Well, it was Chrissy Hine, but it may not have been, you know. Right. Um, but he, did he work, he worked quite quickly, presumably? Well, he did, because the pathway where these guys recorded... We're were, looking at the picture of The Damned with... Uh, yeah, The Damned. It was the record. first hit act out of Stiff, weren't they? Well, they, 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 it was the first punk rock record ever released in the UK, uh, ahead of the Sex Pistols. Um, uh, Smash New Rose, New Rose, yeah, yeah, yeah. A, f- a few weeks before... Pathway, I mean, it was a tiny, tiny... I don't know if anybody knows New Pathway, but it's about sort of 12 foot by 12. No AC. I don't even know they had a radiator. So it was boiling in summer, freezing in winter. The first thing you want to do when you go there is get out. So you go in, you do four hours, smash the thing down, and then go over the pub over the road, which is how Nick used to work. But he did have uh, in his team Barry Farmer, who was a great... Engineer, engineer yeah. who made the records. I mean, those records sound really good for eight they track. They do. Eight track, they sound big and loud, and that's how they did it. And then Elvis inherited that when Nick took Elvis in to do Aim Is True. Well, also, he, you know, he made Reckless Eric at first record. Oh, wow. Well, which that's a, a, a fantastic great, record. It's, it? it's a lovely record, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So he got loads of opportunities suddenly, you know, out of stiff, you know. Yeah. Pretty he, much anybody who came in through the door, if we don't know what to do with them, send them to the studio with send Nick. Them, send them to the studio with Nick. And that went on for a little while. And then, um, famously, uh, Jake and Dave Robinson fell out. And although there was a stiff tour in 77, that was the end of the road for uh, Elvis and Nick, and um, Jake took them to uh, Radar with Andrew Lauder, yeah. So, yeah, they, so he goes on this tour with yeah. five acts, yeah. 
uh, Elvis Costello, Larry Wallace, Nick Lowe, Reckless Eric, and Ian Dury. Yeah. And the idea is they're going to rotate headliners. That's the idea, yeah. To, that's the way they were all talked up at the start. Yeah. You know, it's don't worry, wonderful boys. democracy. It's, yeah. yeah, it's exactly, don't worry, boys. It's co-headline and we'll have a revolving bill. Well, after two nights, it was quite obvious that the... And I love all these. This is not... I'm not slighting them. They're friends and I love them all. Eric wasn't ready to do that. <laughs> Larry Wallace didn't really have much of an act, to be fair, on him. Nick couldn't be bothered. He, he wanted to go on first so he could go down the pub. <laughs> and the, the two guys left and right, obvious geniuses... Elvis Costello and Ian Dury. And, and, and both had formidable backing groups. And, of course, they became right. the, head, the headliners. And they would rotate headline... And the other three would just sort of mess about for an hour or so before the stars went on. <laughs> That's how it, it evolved. Yeah. So they, 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 he goes off and, and he makes his first album on, on Radar. Is that right? Yeah, Radar Records, yeah. Which was Andrew Lauder, who had been at UA and signed, and signed Brinsley Schwartz and went on the Fillmore trip in 1970. So we're talking really the same team in a different clothing. So, yeah, Andrew's formed Radar Records. And so we're looking at here at the uh, cover of, uh, of Jesus of, of Cool, as it's yeah. called, the first album, where he's, he's kind of dressed up as various different rock archetypes, isn't yeah, he? Yeah, yeah. Because that was what he was doing at the time, wasn't he? He can, he can make you a surf record. He can make you a kind of powerbot record. Yeah, anything, record. yeah. yeah. There, there is that. Um, I, I suppose, yeah, that does sort of represent the different... Uh, types of music on the record. Although all of those pictures were taken on the same day. Yeah, yeah, sure. By Chris Gabrin in an office somewhere in um, Camden Town. And Jake said to, to Nick, right, I want you to grow a beard. Could just grow a beard and don't wash your hair. And bring as many clothes as you can. And they borrowed as many guitars as they could. So they do the first shot, Nick's got the beard. And then an hour later he shaves the beard off. Then he washes his hair... So throughout the day, he becomes cleaner and more f- fresh-faced. <laughs> and then they jumble it all up, and it looks like it was shot over a month or something. Yeah. I mean, the funny story is that um, uh, Nick says that they, they ran out of costumes, so they'd go out in the street and try and stop people on the paper and say, excuse me, that jacket looks about your size. Can we borrow it, please? And he said, this building was surrounded by people half-dressed. <laughs> <laughs> well, we borrowed their shirts and their jackets. So he's got, the, he's got this going on, though, at the same time as he's, as he's making records with Dave Edmonds. So he, yeah. he, you know, he's working with Dave Edmonds' rock pile. Yeah, he? he's, he's, he's producing for Stiff. He's making his own album, The Roots of Rock Pile... He's gone on the road with Dr. Feelgood as a tour manager. <laughs> uh, famously checked into the hotel as Dale Liberator, equipment handler. <laughs> Smashed Lee's Gill guitar, but that's another story. Um, and, yeah, so this, this picture here, I think that's taken round at... Uh, that could be Dave Edmonds' flat in the Maid of Ale. Well, not Maid of Ale, that, around that part of the world. Um, so there we see... Well, we see them there, don't we? I mean, Nick looks like he's had a couple of drinks and Dave looks a bit pissed off. Because the, there was a huge amount of drinking at the time, wasn't there? Uh, massive. <laughs> I mean, really, seriously dangerous levels. Well, the feel-goods, really. 
Yeah, a lot of alcohol. Unbelievable. And that's before the point at which people regarded it as a problem. It was kind of... I have to say, I interviewed Nick for Radio 1 in about 19... I suppose 1982 or something like that, and he came in with two bottles of Liebfrau Milch. Oh, lovely. In a warm Liebfrau Milch in a carrier bag (laughs) and got one of those little BBC cups. And I would have to ask very, very long questions on this live radio programme in order for him to fill up his glass, drink the entire (laughs) thing of Liebfrau Milch. And he drank drank all two bottles in about about three-quarters of an hour. He he had a very big... uh, him and Lee uh, had very... Whereas this guy didn't really have the capacity but tried to keep up. I think that's the way I read it at the time. Right, right. Um, but that, uh, you, tell us the bottom line story, briefly, because that was around now, wasn't it? Well, yeah. The rock, rock, in 1978, Rockpile... Uh, they hadn't re- recorded as Rockpile because Dave Edmonds was signed to um, Led Zeppelin's... Um, Swan Song. Swan, Swan Song. Had to make four albums for Swan Song and... Jake used to go for meetings with uh, Led Zeppelin's uh, manager, uh, Peter, Peter Grant, Grant yeah. and he used to tell his office staff, uh, give them written instructions on what to do should he not come back. <laughs> yeah. Jake was funny. He said, Grant laid on a limo for, for um, Jake to go to uh, Peter Grant's uh, property, which was actually uh, a turreted castle with a moat. He said, I was kept waiting for an hour on the wrong side of the moat. (laughs) (laughs) And then he went in and Peter Grant said to him, what's your trouble, son? You want me to give you a million dollars? Want some cocaine? You know, lots of of drugs. Uh, Jake was trying to get, not so much trying to get Dave out of his swan song deal, but tried to persuade Grant that, hey, there's this band called Rockpile. They're doing good business in the States and we should be making a Rockpile record. And Grant sort of put his, or Grant's boys sort of put their foot down and they, they, they couldn't record as Rockpile. That's the story and that's more or less true. Um, when Dave delivered his fourth album, they were free to become or record as Rockpile. But in the interim, yes, famously in 1978, they were on tour and they played at the Bottom Line Club in New York City. And um, it was the day that Keith Richards got out of prison in Canada um, and um, he, I think he, Keith Richards been on drugs charges or he had. something yeah. like that. Yeah. And he arrived crackling with booze and cocaine. Uh, yeah, and he, insisted yeah, yeah. he wanted to go on stage with them, didn't he? Well, Keith, Keith had an apartment in New York, which actually, if anybody knows Broadway, Lower Broadway, where the old Tower Records shop was on that mm. corner, Keith had an apartment in that building, and that is only two blocks walk from the bottom line. So he comes down from Toronto. He's out of prison in Toronto flies down to New York, goes wash and brush up at his apartment <laughs> and crosses the road to see Rockpile at the bottom line, accompanied by Barbara Sharon, who famously was doing his Keith Richards press at the time. And um, Nick says, you know, that uh, everybody knew Keith Richards was in the building. The buzz w- it was unbelievable. And... Um, Somebody had the idea, I think Barbara Schroen said, yeah, can he get up and do a couple of numbers with you? Well, Dave Edmonds is very bit sniffy about that. Wasn't the, having it. A bit sniffy about the <laughs> Rolling Stones. Um, said, no, no, boy, there's no way he's coming on stage like fucking wanker. And uh, your words to that effect, detailed in here, obviously, Nick talking, so blame him. But it's Nick's, it's Nick's um, story. Um, but um, Dave Edmonds, uh, sorry, Keith Richards makes his way backstage and says to Nick, 
Uh, is there anywhere we can talk about this quietly? And Nick said there was a broom cupboard. So they went in the broom cupboard and Keith's getting all the gear out. He said most of it went on the floor. <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, you know, giving it that. And um, then Dave's still... Not, I'm not, he's not fucking coming on stage with us. Boy, though, he's not, you know. <laughs> anyway... Keith does go on stage, and he's terrible, you know. They open up with a, a Chuck Berry song, and th- as Nick tells it... Oh, they, they put a little amplifier aside for Keith to plug into, but Keith, didn't, Keith thought that uh, the big amplifier was his, which was Nick's bass amplifier. <laughs> so Nick's playing... Doo, 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 and suddenly he hears the sound Strange all noises trebly and then all bass, and he turns around and it's Keith's changing the control <laughs> so on, on Nick's amp. Anyway, apparently it was a nightmare, and, and of course, famously, um, uh, Dave Edmonds shouts to the roadie, Des, get that fucking cunt off stage. <laughs> But actually, you've missed out a bit, which is that Keith walks backwards, trips up, and falls over the amplifier. Oh, yeah, he flat did, on his yeah, face on the he stage. Did, he did fall. Fantastic. Um, and that was a quite well-documented story. Yeah. But yeah. Nick, Nick tells it pretty good in there, you know, in the book. There's a the lovely book. bit in the book talking about when he, when he marries Carleen Carter, oh, yeah. the daughter of, uh, of yeah. uh, June Carter, yeah. and the stepdaughter of Johnny Cash. Yeah. And it's just fantastic where, where he's describing living in Shepherd's Bush and his step... You know, his, his parents-in-law, Johnny and June, come and stay. Yeah. And they go out dressed every day. Either you can go out kind of in disguise and yeah. just try and pretend you're not who you are, or you can do what they do, which is go out literally dressed as Yeah, he walked, down, he walked around as the man in black. Yeah. And, and all the neighbours would come out, top of the morning to you, Johnny. Yeah? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Fantastic. And, he, and they would stay... They would stay at uh, Melrose Terrace with... Um, Carlene and Nick once or twice and then um, also uh, Carlene became very ill shortly afterwards and uh, had to go into hospital had an well she had an ectopic pregnancy is what happened but uh, June flew over to be with Carlene and stayed at the house and uh, Nick, the way Nick tells it you know uh, June would put the rubber glove the marigolds on and start <laughs> you know, cleaning the walls and making... Can I get some coffee, honey, you know? And, and Nick would go, look, no, no, I've got to go. I've got to go. He said, you know, I didn't really want June to see the way I was living at the time. And it was... She was... It was too close. He loved June, obviously, but he said it was a bit too close. Anyway, Colleen pulled, pulled through that. Uh, they didn't have a child together, obviously. Um, but the Johnny Cash and June Carter connection, yeah, is obviously... Uh, had some very entertaining stories. But there was a moment when he was just the hippest man in, 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 in British pop music in about 1979, never off the cover of The Enemy and Sounds and stuff. And the, Got a he lot seemed of to press, connect yeah. with... He, he was one of the few people who'd made that transition from the old guard and was chiming with the, kind of, with the, with the new wave, as it were. But yeah, that, yeah. He, yeah, it's, see, it's not... I don't know, I've got my very personal go on. thoughts. Yeah. Well, a lot of... The, some people just don't get it, you know? Some musicians, they really do think it's all about that. And it kind of isn't. It's great I, if I you can do that. I tell the listeners that you're miming, you're miming playing, playing a guitar. guitar. So yeah. it, it, it's not about playing the guitar. Well, it is if you're Ry Kuda and you're God, you know, and a fantastic guitar player. I'm not taking it away from musicians. No, no, sure. But really what he did uh, was to read 
the scene. And he'd listened to a lot of records, and he could play in different styles. He was just one jump ahead all the time. But still very minority interest. I mean, we're not talking about a superstar here. We're no. talking about a cult figure, and maybe that's part of the reason, you know, that he's not mainstream. I, I don't want to go to you know, personal theories I've got about all this. So tell us your personal theory about Little Village, which was the... Well, you know, the yeah. The, the mid-level supergroup. Which was, yeah, which is Jim Keltner and Nick on bass and then uh, John Hyatt and, and Ry Cooter. And it, and should Ry have been, it should have been enormous somehow. It, it should have been. What happened was Warner Brothers had a big hit with the Travelling Wilburys. And the A&R guy who signed the Wilburys, Lenny Waronka, who, who was big mates with Ry Cooter and signed Ry Cooter to uh, Warner's mm. years earlier... Uh, there was a gap between... There was a void between the Wilbur's first record and the next release, whatever that was. And Waronka sort of thought, can we find another group in our, from our stable to kind of emulate this? And uh, Jim Keltner had played drums on the Wilbur's record. Mm -hmm. Ry Kuda was Waronka's pet signing. Um... John Hyatt had been in Raikuda's band on and off over the years, and Nick had been over and made the record with uh, John Hyatt in 87, Bring the Family, I think. Yeah. Um, so on paper, it looked fantastic. You know, these four... I mean, you probably saw... Did you go to... I saw yeah. them. Yeah. At the Hammersmith. Yeah. They looked a little bit timid, a little bit shy, a little bit nervous to me, uh, but... The record, what do you think? I mean... Well, I haven't played it since 1980, whenever it was, so I think that probably says... Yeah, Th they should have been, but um, I, I think there's too, too much of a conflict there. Between, I mean, Keltner clearly can get session work yeah. for... He's the, he's the new Hal Blaine, you know. Hyatt can be a tricky customer. Uh, Rye... You know, was starting to do all the definitely a tricky customer. Well, yeah, <laughs> and Nick, Nick, great. You know, Nick, Nick. Um, I think he complimented them really well. But you talk about him being finding that whether it's successful or not, he was a major changing point for him because he looked at a different way of of writing songs, writing yeah. songs, taking you know songs about his own life rather than those kind of uh, pastiche songs and um, yeah. you know, novel like songs. He wrote about his own life and about getting older and the, and the kind of fallibility of the human spirit. And he well, the, on the more three, recent records, yeah, 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 he produces yeah. three great records. Fabulous, the Convincer, Dig My Mood, you yeah. know, Impossible Bird. I mean, these, yeah. are, these are wonderful, wonderful records. They've got some very and he good songs. He changed the way he wrote songs completely yeah 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 they're quite sort of introspective aren't they and yeah. um thinking about life and thinking about uh, i guess what everybody's starting to think now about is that you know how many years have we got and yeah. you start to think about that and he's written songs along those lines you see i think he's the only one of his generation mm. who's stopped drinking got older and got better he has. There simply isn't anybody else. He has. Well, yeah, I mean, I spoke to one, one uh, journalist I spoke to, um, a, an American guy who wrote for Washington Post and New York Times. Um, he, he reckons that Nick Lowe was the first musician from the, that era, from the 60s and 70s, who stopped wanting to be a young rocker and became 
Well, I think you write about this in one of your books, David. I read you felt that he 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 really um, wasn't frightened of becoming old, yeah, and he did it with style and panache. And this guy said to me, he says, really only two people have really done that. And Leonard Cohen was one. Well, Leonard Cohen is a yeah. good... He didn't. He actually yeah. said Bob Dylan. Oh, right, yeah, but, Bob Dylan too. But yeah. They, yeah so, and I, I was talking to Elvis Costello about this, and Elvis sort of agreed with us. He said, yeah, it's a bit like, you know, you look at... Um, what's the name of the guy in Aerosmith? Stephen... Tyler. 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 He, said, he said, Stephen Tyler, he said, he's a, a great character, but it's an awful lot of work every morning when you go... <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> Trying to look seventeen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Whereas Nick can Nick can just be you know wear his street clothes and he's he's grown old gracefully. It's a cliche, but yeah, he's yeah, done yeah. it really well. And in a way, he's he's a, he's a first. There's a few other people doing it now. They've kind of cottoned onto it. You see it a bit more with the musicians in their sixties who don't try and be young kids anymore. But many of them still do, don't they? Mm, yeah. They're still, you know, all this business. Yeah, yeah. He's quite stylish. Do you think he's received the, the, the kind of recognition he deserves? Because he's made these fantastic records. But they're still, they're kind of, they're, they're by no means Well, this is, the, this is the conundrum. And it's in the word, word deserves. Um, I, I'm not sure he does sort of deserve it. If I want to be really harsh about it... He could have done a lot more. I mean, he really... I'd say this to... I think he would admit it. He did piss away about 20 years of not really working very hard. All right, he sat at home writing fantastic songs and he made these great records. But he went through years where he hardly played live. You know, he didn't, he, he, he didn't have burning ambition. Whereas, but maybe that's, good, maybe that's a good thing. Maybe what he is now is better for the fact he hasn't had that burning ambition. But if he'd, if he'd really worked really, really hard at, at pushing himself from... You know, Jake Riviera famously liked, to, you know, to twist the, the James Brown epitaph. You know, he said, Nick Lowe is the least hard-working man in show business. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that... And I think Nick would be the first to admit first it. First to admit so. that was true. Absolutely. It would make a good alternative title for this book, wouldn't it? The least hard-working man in <laughs> <Yeah>. show business. <laughs> but as it is, it's called Cruel to be Kind, The Life and Music of Nick Lowe. Please thank Will Birch. Thank you. Thank you. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. Thank you very much.